In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today, William Windsor, has spent his life as an entrepreneur and businessman. Since 2005, he's become engaged in a legal battle with Made of the Mist Corporation and has taken a journey to discover the legal system in the United States. He was recently quoted, We are in real trouble when the Constitution is meaningless and judges commit crimes hiding behind their robes. Now retired, he has three grandchildren, Madison, Mackenzie and Catherine, and divides his time between their welfare, his family, and his ongoing pursuit in understanding better the judicial system in the United States and the role of its Supreme Court. William Windsor. Welcome to In Discussion today, and my guest, William Windsor, welcome to the program today. Thank you, David. Nice to be here. We would like to talk today on the judicial system in the United States. Could we start off by covering your life and career very briefly? Well, I'm just a 62-year-old grandpa, retired, but actually did a lot before this. Um, I uh, started my first business when I was a junior in college uh, in the t-shirt business. was accepted to law school, but decided not to go because I was making too much money. Uh, decided there should it should be an industry rather than just a group of people who were kind of selling T-shirts, which back in 1969 was a pretty new thing. So I started the magazine and the trade shows for the T-shirt industry, and I'm considered to be the father of the T-shirt industry. The magazine was called Impressions. The shows were called the Imprinted Sportswear Shows, and they're still being produced today. I acquired and started other magazines, sold those. I generally tend to do things for a few years and sell them and go and do something else. So I'd say my specialty over the years has been starting over 50 companies, breathing life into them, and passing them off to someone else. Somewhere along the way, I kind of accidentally bumped into a company that was looking for someone to run their magazines and trade shows and conferences in Europe. Had never done a resume, never worked for anyone before, but uh, this was about 1970 or 92. So 20-some-odd years into my career, I fax off this first resume I've ever done, and I tell my wife, and she says, oh, my gosh, we're moving to England. And I said, well, it's a little premature, but I said, I suspect they probably will like it because I had the background they were looking for and, and more. So what, more than 10 minutes later, they called. Three weeks later, I'm running a company in Europe in beautiful Chester, England. We loved it, spent two years there company was acquired by Goldman Sachs. So it's a pretty nice deal for me. I went went over there working for a good-sized company, and then next thing I know, Peter Sachs is the chairman of the board. They moved me back to beautiful Cleveland, which we actually loved. Uh, didn't think we would, but just loved it. Became the president of the company. Then the company was sold, and after it was sold, I decided that I was going to leave to start my own trade show company of a significant size and one of the unsuccessful bidders wanted to to back me, and that was Bain Capital. 
So there I worked with Mitt Romney and Jeff Rennert and David Dominic and other founders of Bain. Spent about five years doing that. We sold to the Washington Post, and I retired and came to Atlanta and mainly was looking to be a grandpa. So that's my background. I've, I've done an awful lot over the years and got an awful lot of business experience, pretty reasonable education. You are clearly very passionate about the judicial system. Before we hit upon that subject, look back to your roots, look back at the 1960s in America. I chart from 1945 onwards, uh, seeing a change in the cultural makeup and the corporate makeup of the country. How do you see the world today in business compared to the world of business and politics in the 1960s? Well, I'll even go back, if can I go back to the 50s? I mean, I was a great school student in the 50s, and you talk about a wonderful time. I mean, I wouldn't trade that growing up in that period for anything in the world. It was simply a kinder and gentler place. We were able to play anywhere in the neighborhood, you know, for for a few miles around without having to be worried about it or our parents being worried about it. You know, I grew up taught to tell the truth and taught that we had this great country and the government protected us. I believed all of that. It wasn't until just a few years ago that after doubting when other people said that there was corruption in government, being a, as patriotic as you get, spent six years in the United States Army Reserve, uh, but, but the, the difference now is just it's completely, totally different. I mean, unfortunately, I've come from being ultra-patriotic and a big defender of the United States into being absolutely scared to death and embarrassed that I live in this country and that it could be run this way. To building this narrative of that period up to present day, can we just look at those decades in my work also as a social historian, working with many leading scientists, philosophers, and other historians? We look at the 50s as being the beginning of a consumerism following the end of the Second World War, and also the decade of fear with the Cold War. I define the 60s as a decade of lust, of new movements, of a group of people with huge good intentions that knew how to destroy the building but not necessarily rebuild it. Moving into the 70s where we saw the rising of predatory greed in the corporate establishment. And of course with it you have a judicial system that becomes more corrupted. That overview that I've given you, would you concur with that? Well, you know, I guess I was just uh, living in a hole. You know, I thought I was a fairly worldly guy, uh, but uh, I, I don't know that I was really aware of all of that, David. And I, I'm not sure that, you know, as I look back now and went to college from 18 to 22, I think it was too early for me. I wasn't smart enough yet. Um, but I, I can tell you this, I remember crawling under our desks for air raid drills and things like that in grade school and being scared. Um, you know, I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. I remember thinking Kennedy was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, you know, I graduated from college in the 70s and went to work and was focused on all of that and just thought the government was pretty honest. But I would say I, I, I gradually began to see, I, I mean, when... The, 
people were taking Internet companies that were losing hundreds of millions of dollars public and giving them values of billions. And when I knew that that didn't make any sense, and when we then saw accounting firms getting nailed for the various things that they had pulled, uh, you know, I thought back to the years before and said this didn't just happen overnight. Let's look back at the formation of this country. We can look back at the Constitution, the original republic, mandate, vision around that, need to have a small government, negative impact, providing opportunities to its citizens, providing freedom, rule of law by God. How do you see that now resonating in this country? There are many who would suggest that anything written by the Founding Fathers has been dissipated very, very quickly, particularly over the last 20 years. Do you concur with that analysis? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and, and all of our forefathers have to be rolling over in their graves. I mean, the country has just been screwed. You know, my experience with the judiciary that we'll talk about and the government is they don't pay any attention to any of those basic mm -hmm. principles upon which we're founded. It's just words on a page that they ignore. And, uh, you know, I think big business is apparently part of this. I mean, I, I'm told by others that, you know, the big corporations, they buy all the elected officials and in essence, by the judges, and they do things the way they want, and the rest of us can live with it. In your work, and I realize that you're very focused at the moment on the judicial corruption, have you considered the point at which this began to unravel? Do you think that possibly it was as far back as the JFK years or the Eisenhower years when these men made incredible speeches about uh, the corporate mansion powers behind the government that clearly were not an attribute to the country or do you chart it more towards the 70s and 80s any thoughts on that you know I, I don't know David I I I, I I don't want to hazard a guess because I haven't studied when it enough. the corporations and business globally got out of hand around the time that, that you had President Reagan, Margaret Thatcher. Back then, and that we had such twisted values that were uh, leading our leaders. Um, you know, I, I really didn't. I thought judges were honest up until 2005. I really did. I'd only been in court a few times, and I thought they probably were doing a decent job. I thought you could call the police, and and uh, they would, uh, you know, do the right thing. We lived in England for two years, and somebody stole the radio out of our car. They caught the guy in the U.S. They wouldn't even go out looking for him. For the next two years, the guy mailed us a check every month until we were paid off. Would never happen here. We have much worse things than that going on here, but it's maybe just an example. You're talking about a far wider area of concern here beyond the judicial system, the backbone of any country civilization. This is indicative of a country now where if its judicial system is corrupt, then you have serious problems across a whole culture. 
Well, you do, and, I, and I've contacted senators, every senator, every congressman, the president, the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Attorney General. No one will even respond. So you tell them and you show them all the proof you have of judicial corruption, and they won't do a thing about it. Now, that doesn't tell me that they're stupid. It tells me that they're either afraid of the judges or they're part of it. You know, I've come to the conclusion now they're all part of it. How did you uncover this problem with the judicial system in your own case? I was sitting having dinner with my sweet wife on August 29, 2005, when the doorbell rang, and it was a process server who served me with about two inches thick lawsuit. <clears throat> after hiding it from my wife and trying to be calm and finishing dinner, after dinner I go and read this thing, and it had 50 sworn paragraphs in it, sworn under... Uh, under oath, under penalty of perjury, before a notary, by a guy named Christopher Glenn, who swore that I did all kinds of things that I never in a million years did. Not not even close, never even did business with these people. And so I thought, well, this is the biggest bunch of BS I've ever seen. You know, we won't have any trouble defeating this, but what a pain. I'm going to have to hire a lawyer to represent me. And it it went from bad to worse. At first, I thought the judge involved was not paying attention because she was a federal judge and didn't like to deal with such such piddly matters. Then I thought maybe she had a completely incompetent legal clerk. But then when I had a chance to go with our attorney and meet with her and the opposing attorney in her chambers, and I asked for an opportunity to speak, and I told Judge Arenda D. Evans that I have brought with me documentation of over 400 counts of perjury and every imaginable form of rules of civil procedure violation by the attorneys. And she said, cut me off in mid-sentence and said, well, I don't want to discuss that. Well, how in the world? You know, then I realized she was corrupt. You know, at that point, you, you can't have somebody tell you that everything the other side has said is false and you have proof of it in their own words through their own depositions, and her refuse to consider it or allow you to present it or even discuss it, you're not left with, with many thoughts other than that. I still held on to the fact, well, maybe she's just mad, just not paying attention. But then after that, every single ruling that the woman ever made did not comply with the law. And she did everything she could to damage me. And then every appellate court judge has done the same thing all the way to the Supreme Court. How during this period was the support that you gained from your own representing attorney? Well, I, at one point, uh, our attorney was a, is a nice guy, probably too nice, maybe an honest attorney. Probably, I'm not sure if it was before that or shortly thereafter, uh, uh, I decided to represent myself. He was representing my son's company and me, and I decided to keep the cost down. I would represent myself, and that way I could do the discovery, the depositions, the, the uh, document production, the interrogatories where you've written answers to things, keep the cost down. My main mission was let's prove that everything that these people said is false in their own words, so that's what I set out to do. So at that time, I pretty much took over at that point and allowed him to do the, the law stuff, and I, I read everything that he submitted and felt that it was all uh, good and well-researched. But none of it mattered. I mean, the first 40 contested motions before Judge Evans, she ruled for the other side on all 40. Where was this court convened? 
This is the United States District Court for the Northern District of Georgia in Atlanta, Georgia. You are faced with this dilemma of the opinion that this judge is corrupt. How is your attorney looking at that assessment? I ended up getting another attorney who represented me for a while as well on an appeal. And both of them just kind of shook their head in disbelief about what was going on. I told them at one point, I said, I think she'd been paid off. Oh, no, no, she couldn't have been paid off. And now I've had to talk to a number of people who've dealt with this particular judge, and they say that she decides how she's going to rule in a case, and it doesn't matter what the facts of the law is, that's what she's going to do. What is this case citing that you have yourself done to warrant this action? Well, what have I done? I did nothing whatsoever. Uh, my son's company did business with this company, Made of the Mist, and Made of the Mist breached a contract, denied uh, that the contract existed, and we told, Ryan told them that he was going to sue them. Next thing you know, they sued him, and they sued me. And they sued me, claiming that I had, you know, uh, stolen money from customers and committed bribery. All this was under oath. That I had sold tickets fraudulently. I never sold a ticket in my life. That I had a website that had all kinds of false information on it. I never had a website. None of it was true. There were 50 paragraphs, and every single one of them, except some that couldn't be true or false, were false. In my son's case, they simply were selling tickets. They had an oral contract for six months that is binding in the state of Georgia. They never had a witness on the other side who disputed that there was a contract, and the judge said there was no contract. She didn't have the rights to say that. The only testimony was that there was a contract. She wouldn't allow the woman on the other side, who was the one that would have to testify for made of the mist, didn't show up for six depositions. And so in the one of the only rulings she ever ruled in our favor, she said she wouldn't allow the woman to testify. Then at summary judgment, they submitted all kinds of information from her, and, and she apparently ruled on the basis of some of that testimony that wasn't supposed to be allowed. I didn't do a doggone thing, and they admitted it. When we took their depositions, even the guy who signed the sworn affidavit, he admitted it. One of them said, oh, it was a mistake. We, we, we included him by mistake. Where is the case at this stage now? It's a, a mess because of the way that I've chosen to pursue it. I have chosen to appeal every single solitary thing that has been illegal or improper. Now, can we take those and provide a set of benchmarks here? You clearly coming across a corruption in the court system. What are the principal failures of that system and of the judge that had such detrimental effect on your case? Well, the judges, David, no longer go by the law, don't pay any attention to the facts, and have no risk whatsoever in doing whatever the heck it is that they want to do. They're not accountable to anybody. Now, people think, oh, if a judge makes a mistake, you get to appeal it to the Court of Appeals and they'll fix it. Well, Judge Arenda D. Evans has been a federal judge here in Atlanta for 32 years. She was appointed by Jimmy Carter. She's been here longer than any of the other federal judges in Atlanta. Now, what do you want to bet that she's an awfully good friends with every federal judge in Atlanta? She is. What is the reputation of this judge in Atlanta that you know of? 
the lawyers are afraid to talk about it because they'll lose their career if they question her. That's that's why I'm a unique animal here. Nobody ever goes after the judges because no attorney will represent you. I talked to dozens. No one would represent me. Scared to death. They'd lose their careers. How do you think that this case would have been handled by a judge that was working strictly by the Constitution? Well, uh, virtually everything that took place would have been handled differently. I mean, I'm telling you that in the entire history of this case, which now extends to, what, over five years, uh, there's never been a ruling that was based on the law or the facts. Never. All the appellate courts have just protected Judge Evans or decided they were just going to get me. How dare I accuse them, them of being corrupt? Well, I accuse them of being corrupt because I've got proof of it. But they don't like people like me, so part of it's, oh, we're going to teach this guy. In five years, David, I was never granted a hearing. People, people are also under the impression from watching TV shows, oh, if you're in a, a lawsuit, you get to go and present evidence and talk to witnesses, and, and people probably think you get an opportunity to talk to the judge. In federal courts, you rarely, if ever, get a hearing. And you're not allowed to talk to the judge. You're not allowed to write the judge. What is the exact definition here in this case of the word corrupt? How can you determine how she is corrupt with this particular case? Is there evidence? How do you see that? Well, you know, perhaps the simplest way to explain it is that we have, I have cited over 200 cases in two, just two orders the first two significant orders that she issued, a preliminary injunction and a summary judgment. I've gone, I gone, went through sentence by sentence, listed every sentence, indicated whether it was true or false, and if it was false, I went into the court record and found the testimony from the other side proving that it was false. So she made over 200 statements in these orders that were just completely, totally false, and we've documented them. When called to her attention, she refused to change, refused to admit that she had done anything wrong. Well, she had an obligation based on saying this is based on the court record that it had to be on the court record. And when she was shown that she made a mistake, she thumbed her nose at it and and, uh, refused to do anything about it. So that's just as intentional as you can get. And my position, David, is that a judge is always under oath. They, they, uh, they give uh, an oath when they're sworn in. They're all attorneys, so they have an attorney's oath that they've sworn to as well. And you're supposed, to, you're supposed to be able to believe that everything that a judge says is true. So when a judge intentionally writes orders and makes intentionally false statements in them for the purpose of damaging you, that is perjury, plain and simple. Now, have you gained any insight from others who have been with this judge in other cases? Has anybody stepped forward and suggested that they are receiving the same treatment? Yes, I've been contacted, say, maybe a dozen people. Uh, One or two attorneys who (laughs) said I had to forget their name as soon as they called. A number of individual people uh, who've had the same experience. Now, that's got to be the tip of the iceberg, because most Pro se parties, and a pro se party is someone who represents themselves rather than have an attorney represent them. Most pro se parties, I, you know, I'd be surprised if almost all of them are 
totally taken advantage of in the federal courts. And they don't, they just assume they lost and they're upset about it, but they don't know that there's any other avenues for them to pursue, and it, it kind of ends there. Uh, there are a few who have the guts to go forward, but very few cases like mine where somebody's smart enough and determined enough uh, that they're going to go and prove all of this. And, you know, when I started into trying to prove all of what she was doing that was corrupt, I, I really thought some court somewhere along the way would care, but now I know how deep and broad this corruption is. Uh, but there's just so many things that she's done. I uh, The other side was given a hearing, and at that hearing I was denied the right to call witnesses, cross-examine witnesses, or present evidence. There must be some sort of special interest here if it is that excessive. Well, the, the Maid of the Mist people have a multi-billion dollar exclusive monopoly courtesy of the province of Ontario and the state of New York. For 164 years, the contract was never tendered for bids. And what I ultimately learned is that my son and I very accidentally blundered into apparently learning without even knowing we learned anything that these, these folks had, in my opinion, defrauded the state of New York in order to obtain the ability to get a 40-year contract. And they used some information that was outdated coming from Canada. So I think what we have here is some people trying to protect their multi-billion dollar exclusive monopoly. And we were kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they decided, my view is that they decided to try to keep us from poking around any further in their business by suing us because they called immediately wanting to settle. As soon as I was served with the suit, I think I got a phone call not more than a day later wanting to settle. And I told them, I said, everything you guys said is, is a lie, so I wouldn't settle with you for anything. That's always been my position. It's always been the principle of the thing, which will cause you to lose a lot of money in this world. But I have really wonderful parents who told me to always tell the truth, and the, I, I guess the one thing in the world I hate more than anything else is a liar. I've always trained my employees over the years and, and my kids and grandchildren you always tell the truth. It's just the way I was brought up. It's the way I am, and I wasn't going to let them get away with it. I think that's what's underneath all of this. And Whether they paid off the judge, I don't know. I, I actually kind of doubt it. I think this is a case of this judge just deciding way back in the beginning without any facts that she was going to rule for them. Now, there's an interesting factor involved. She was not the original judge. The original judge was a judge named Forrester. And he recused himself, saying he had a conflict. Well, he didn't have a conflict with us. We'd never heard of him. So that meant the only conflict he could have would be with the other party or their attorneys. And I have seen a couple of other cases where a case was originally signed to another judge, and then it gets passed over to Judge Evans, and Judge Evans pulled the same stuff. I just I kind of wonder if they don't have a signal. Look, when I withdraw and pass it to you, you know what to do. I don't know. Let's look at the global picture here, the larger problem behind this, particularly the Supreme Court. Is this something that has worsened in recent years? There's always good and bad in any society, in any civilization, and I'm sure that this does occur. But what is it that you can point to that would indicate that the corruption or this lack of ethics, perhaps, has 
increased over the last decade or so? Well, uh, my only experience is the last five or six years, uh, so I, I don't know that I can say that. I can tell you that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to uh, learn from various and sundry people who contact me telling their horror stories uh, about judicial corruption and their mistreatment. I'm trying to piece a little more of it together. But, you know, one thing, and another misconception that I suspect most Americans have, I certainly did, is that the Supreme Court is a court of appeals. Well, they're not. Now, we ought to look back, and I'm, I'm thinking maybe it was in the 60s, uh, but I could be totally wrong. Somewhere in the last 30, 40 years, the Supreme Court ceased being a court of appeals. They decided that when an appeal, which is called a petition for a writ of certiorari, comes to them, that they don't have to consider it. They decide whether they think it's important enough to them uh, to consider it. And so last year they only considered 1.1% of the petitions for writ of certiorari, which is an appeal from the appellate court. Uh, They didn't even look at the other 99%. Therefore indicating that any judgment, any appeal, any decision has become subjective and not objective based upon the original Constitution? Yeah, it means that we've put the appellate court, which was what used to be the first of two levels of appeal, we've put them in a completely tyrannical position where they can do whatever the heck it is that they want. And these courts have all kinds of little techniques that they use. The main one that they use in my cases is in some of what I filed with the Supreme Court, I provided 62 pages, I think it was, of orders by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal on my case, my various cases and appeals. Out of those 62 pages, which I think was about 25 orders, there is not, I, when I set up to write this for the Supreme Court, I put it in a spreadsheet or no, I put it in Microsoft Word, and I came up with two colors. I was going to color everything where they discussed an issue of mine in red, and I was going to highlight in yellow uh, everything uh, where they were discussing something for the uh, that, that was unrelated, that was just their own boilerplate. And there was not a single solitary case that they ever discussed in any of those orders, any of my points of law or errors of fact completely ignore them. They basically love to write two or three pages that say nothing, that are kind of a little bit of the history of the case, and then they give you a one-sentence ruling that says nothing and just denies it. So they don't give you any information to go on, which is a violation of a Supreme Court ruling of 2009, Corcoran versus Leverhagen, where the Supreme Court said they have to give the parties involved an explanation of why they made the ruling they made. But they don't pay any attention to it. They ignore all of that because there's only a 1% chance that the Supreme Court will ever do anything about it. So, Has the Supreme Court moved or showing signs of moving towards giving judges federal level, state level, a free hand by ignoring any constitutional right or law. They told them that on January 18th of this year. And, you know, let me say to your to your listeners, they're sitting there hearing this retired grandpa who they don't know from Adam, and they're probably saying what a lot of people think, oh, he lost a lawsuit and he's sour grapes. 
my involvement doesn't really matter anymore. Everything I'm saying is the total truth. It's proven on my website. Uh, just uh, people need to accept that what I'm telling them is the truth because we got a big problem here. And January 18th, I, I submitted four different petitions to the Supreme Court in the fall of last year. One was a petition for writ of certiorari, which is an appeal, which I knew there was only a 1% chance of them uh, looking at. But they have to look at what you submit to decide which ones they're going to consider. And I told them that the judges in Atlanta, Georgia, federal judges, are totally corrupt. And they decided that wasn't worthy of their consideration. Well, I'd think that if you're going to approve 1% of the cases to consider that are important, if somebody tells you that all the judges down here are corrupt, that ought to be one of them. Well, I tried to get a motion filed because there are two documents that are on file here being kept in secret by Judge Evans that will prove the corruption and the obstruction of justice by her. So I wanted to get the Supreme Court to give a five-minute inspection of those documents. I said, you don't even have to look at it, judges, justices. Just have one of your employees look at it. Get some entry-level law clerk. All they have to look at is these cover pages of two documents and determine whether or not these things are bogus or not. And uh, the clerk told me that I couldn't do that in a petition for writ of certiorari, that what I needed to do was file a petition for writ of mandamus. Well, I knew about petitions for writ of mandamus because I'd filed some here in the appellate court, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, but didn't really realize you could do it at the Supreme Court. But what that is, it's an original proceeding at the Supreme Court that the judges have to consider. They have to issue a ruling on it. They're not allowed to do where they say, oh, it's only it's not one of the 1% that we choose to look at. So I filed three. I filed one relative to Judge Evans, one relative to her running buddy, Judge William S. Duffy, and one relative to the judges of the uh, 11th Circuit. I spelled out chapter and verse at great expense, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents to prove what I was saying, that proved the corruption, proved all these orders were false, showed everything that these judges ignored, and then we sat and waited for the opinion. So the opinion comes out, and it's one word in each of three cases, denied, which means refused. Now, in a petition for writ of certiorari or at mandamus, you ask the court to respond to specific questions. The questions that I ask them to respond to is, will you tell the federal judges in America that they don't have the right to disregard the Constitution and disregard the laws and, in essence, avoid the Constitution? And the Supreme Court has answered three times. We refuse to do that. Now, where does this leave you at this juncture? What other opportunities or course of action can you take? I filed petitions for rehearing with the Supreme Court where I have spelled out the fact that they are under an obligation by the Constitution and the oath that they took to support the Constitution. For them to refuse to tell federal judges that they have to honor the Constitution is the most extreme violation of their oath. And in essence, they no longer are acting with authority because they have committed treason to the Constitution. It was not a very polite, I was polite, but it spells it out point blank. I told them that they have violated a federal law that's a criminal violation by not reporting the various criminal acts of these judges that I documented for them. So we'll see what happens. But if they come back again and just say denied on the petition for rehearing, um, they'll send an even more interesting message because this is specifically about them. 
the the previous petitions were about the judges down here in Atlanta. This petition is about them and what they've done wrong, and uh, and we'll see. Now I have notified all of them by letter that I plan to seek their impeachment. Now I'm assuming that any local attorneys firms would not be a viable course of action because of their fear in getting near this issue? Scared to death. I mean, their careers are over. You know, they might do all right in state court, but I imagine their reputation would get so smeared there as well. But in the federal court, they would simply be completely and totally totally screwed they they just wouldn't have a chance in the world so no one no one will help me it's me that's okay i research everything i know what the law is i know what they're supposed to do and i know that they don't do it so i've written every congressman every senator i've written the president i've written every presidential candidate three-page letter i said look folks we have a corrupt system and this is the scariest thing that has ever happened in my 62 years we no longer have any rights these courts can do whatever it is that they want, and somebody has to stop them. What is it that you are likely to lose at the end of the day if this is not resolved? Well, I, I, we're already a fortune, you know, in the hole in legal fees. If, if I end up losing at the Supreme Court, uh, I will have lost exactly what every other citizen's lost, and that is we've got now proof that the corruption goes all the way from the the most entry-level district court judge all the way up to the Supreme Court justices. And it shouldn't be a surprise the corruption goes that high. They're all victims of the system, you know, or, or products of the system. Now, are there organizations in this country that you have reached out to who are aware of this? Well, you know, I, I contacted the American Civil Liberties Union. Wouldn't even return my call, wouldn't respond to my letters, told me they were too busy. I said, how can you guys be too busy to cover something like this? I mean, this is something that could affect, it does affect every single American. No interest. I mean, I, I, you know, I went to the legal aid thing, and they said I wasn't poor enough. Uh, I've, I've, I reported these people to every government authority, and nobody did a thing. So I don't know. You know, my next hope or my next bet is uh, I'm going to the United Nations. I'm going to file a complaint with the United Nations. Maybe, maybe they'll do something. I'm going to um, I'm going to pursue several other things that people have indicated to me are possible things for me to pursue. But the main thing I think I have to do at this point is just say, hey, all right, I, I've been screwed. I'll continue to fight all I can for myself. But what I want to do is try to educate as many people as possible to what we have. And, and you know, our great hope is that if enough people find out about this, they'll do something. But sadly, thus far, I've found that if people haven't been affected by this personally, they don't much care. If you look back in retrospect now, before five years ago, how has this changed your life if you really deeply think about what you have traveled through and experienced? You know, for most part, it's been a pretty miserable five years. You know, here I am retired. I've got two cute little granddaughters here and yeah, I've spent good time good time with them, but it's affected the amount of time I've had to spend with them. And you know, at this point, I'm going to have to come out of retirement and find some other way to make money because uh, all of my retirement money is has been spent. And uh, you know, I, I I think probably the worst thing is, I mean, when I tell you I was patriotic, I was as patriotic as they come. I mean, I defend the America against anything. 
refuse to believe these reports I heard of this and that type of corruption in government. You know, I figured it was all sour grapes. And and we have flags on our cars, and we fly a flag in front of our house. Now I put my I buy flag stamps and I put them on the envelopes upside down because that's a sign of distress. Now, are there others in your community or who have contacted you that have experienced the same ordeal? Yeah, David, I've been contacted by literally thousands. At last count, I'd received over 4,000 emails, something like seven, 800 phone calls that I'm hopeless. I'll never be able to get them returned. But there, there, there are, there's a group of people out there, but they aren't an organized group. And um, there are people who've been through it or have friends or neighbors or relatives who've been through it so that they know that it's real. And there's a whole bunch of websites out there. And I've been trying to kind of see if I couldn't get everybody to come together because I feel like if we all pooled our resources and our contacts, maybe there's some hope that we could be a Susan B. Anthony or a Martin Luther King or whoever else and and actually do something. Uh, but it, it it's showing signs of being really tough because everybody's got their own lives to live and their own problems, and and I'm I'm not finding uh, I'm not finding a great rally yet. Now, what are your thoughts, therefore, about America itself? Because you're talking about the judicial system. We haven't covered Homeland Security. We haven't covered the Inland Revenue Service or the, the Patriot Act. What are your thoughts on those other establishments? Do you think that having gone through this with the judicial system, that there could well be more universal problems across the board in all of these other areas in this country? Yeah, I think I, I now believe uh, uh, that it's all corrupt. And, I, you know, gosh, that sounds awfully strong. Again, people say, no, it's a grandpa. I don't know what he's talking about. I've written the president. He hadn't responded. I've written every congressman and senator. Not a single solitary one has responded. I wrote him a letter and says, are you aware that our federal judiciary is corrupt? That's the first paragraph. And then I say in the second paragraph, I have absolute proof. And then I give them some specific examples and tell them to call me, and this is the most serious thing that's ever happened in America. In my opinion, our rights have been stolen, and nobody calls. Nobody writes. I, I notified every member of the House and Senate Judiciary Committee a year ago, and only Arlen Specter responded. He referred me to my senator, Saxby Chambliss, and Saxby Chambliss said he couldn't get involved because it might come before him on impeachment. And I said, well, it might come before you on impeachment, but who in the world is going to bring it up for impeachment if my own senator and representative won't talk to me? So I, 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 think, I think the whole system is, uh, is corrupt. The idea that we appoint these federal judges for life is, is ridiculous. I think it's very tough to find people who are honest. And I think if you want to talk about you know, the social implications of all of this, I really think that when I was growing up back in the 50s, people were honest. Uh, I think that we have a crisis in this country of, of, of greed and dishonesty that's just unbelievable. So we and, all need to look at that. And many others close to you share that view? Oh, I don't think most people close to me are um, um, that willing to talk about it. My experience has been people don't want to talk about it. What about the wider definition of this country that you were born in, that you grew up in? How has you, as a grandfather, as a, 
a man who has served this country think that it will develop? Well, sadly, I think it's just going to continue to be more and more corrupt and nobody's going to do anything about it. That's my jaded view at this point. I mean, literally, if we're going to clean things up, we'd have to replace every federal judge. And I read something online that said there's 3,500. It's hard for me to believe there's that many, but I used the number because someone on the Internet said it was. You know, we've got, what, 600 representatives and senators. I don't know if there's 4,100 really honest people in America that we could put in those roles. And I don't know that we could keep them honest if we did. There's too many financial influences, so I don't know what we can do. But we need to try to find some honest people. I do have about 30 specific ideas for what we can do to clean up the judiciary. And I think if we could get some uh, legislative people to introduce these, and if we could get at least some of them enacted into law, there are some pretty simple things that we could do, and maybe the simplest one is to return the right of presentment, which is provided for in the Constitution, to citizen grand juries. In other words, what that means is you give a citizen grand jury the right to tell law enforcement people who they need to go after. We don't have to go through the court system. You're talking about possibly a completely new type of governance. I think that's what we need, bottom line, but I think this is something that's already in the Constitution and has been forsaken or taken away from grand juries. Let's just give it back to them. That way we would at least have some citizens who should care about their fellow citizens who aren't being paid for what they do, or I guess they get some token, who could take a complaint from someone like me and discuss it in the grand jury and and tell the U.S. attorney or the attorney general, you've got to look into this. So, you know, that was an idea presented to me by a retired uh, commander, Fitzpatrick, who is one of the people who's experienced atrocious uh, judicial and and legal corruption. And uh, several people have presented that to me. And I said, you know, that sounds like a good one, but I guess we're going to have to get somebody to vote for all this. You know, lawyers are part of our problem. I wanted to run. There's a judge here in our county who's especially uh significantly accused of corruption by others and in looking into some of those complaints i felt like uh from what i read and saw from some court records that appeared to be right so i said i'll tell you what i'm gonna do i'll run against her got to be an attorney for seven years to run for judge so one of my recommendations let's eliminate all the attorneys as judges just put smart people in those positions then make the attorneys tell the truth which is a huge problem but if you provided the proper uh, negative uh, repercussions, if an attorney doesn't tell the truth, any honest person could sit up there and intelligent person could be a judge. You have to be a lawyer for seven years. Do you feel that this is a human rights issue and hence why you are considering taking it to the United Nations or higher? Does this get into the human rights area? In my opinion, it does. I mean, it's clearly a a question of civil rights, and when the government takes all of your rights away, you know, to me, that's a human rights issue, and I would hope that the United Nations and, uh, you know, one other avenue that I have to pursue is is taking a complaint to the military. Um, I would hope somebody out there would uh, say, you know, this just can't happen. I've told people, and a lot of them don't want to hear it, but We've heard these reports growing up about communist countries where they do these horrible things. 
and we were scared to death of communists coming in and taking over our country. We've got a much bigger problem. You know, we've been taken over from within. And as I told the Supreme Court, you're, you took an oath and you have an obligation to protect us from foreign and domestic enemies. And here you've allowed our country to be completely perverted by domestic enemies, you know, your brethren. I just want Americans to realize that we have the most significant problem we could possibly have, and, it, and I don't matter in it. I just happen to blunder into it. What would you describe this country as being your home? How much do you love this country, and how much are you willing to fight for it? Well, I used to love it a lot. I don't love it much anymore, um, but I'd like to fix it. I mean, I've got three granddaughters now, and um, one of them asked me about growing up during the uh, Civil Rights era and Martin Luther King, and she asked me what I did about it. And I said, well, Madison, I was never prejudiced, but I didn't do anything about it. And she said, well, when I grew up, I'm going to do something about it. She said, have you ever done anything important? I said, no. Well, this is my important thing. I'd like to fix it for my grandchildren. And uh, we were founded on some great principles. Let's just bring those back. But it would take somebody huge... You know, it's going to take a presidential candidate who, who educates the people because the media won't cover this. I, I think that's one of the only hopes we have is if somebody gets on a platform and lets people know what's going on out there. William Windsor, it has been wonderful to talk to you today, and I do wish you the, all the very best for the future in this case. Thanks, David. You're a breath of fresh air. You, you'll spread the word to far more people than I ever could. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one -on -one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Com.